So how are we? Good. Um, so how many of you all are here? I saw uh, Bryce over there, and I know he had prom last night. Who else is here and you had prom last night? Raise your hand. Oh, looks like only Bryce is varsity. All right. Well, he made it. He made it here. All right, so good to see you all. Um, we started a new series last week, and we've been talking about, we're talking about ancient heresies in the series, and uh, these are false beliefs about Jesus. So it might be kind of weird to address, like, false beliefs about Christ, but we're going to be looking at these ancient heresies, like, from way back when, and we are portraying each heresy with a certain superhero character. It's a weird combination, but just bear with us on this. So last week, we looked at Superman, and do you remember the heresy of last week? Do you remember what it was called? It was a funny name. Remember what it was? No? No? Why do I have this job, people? Uh, docetism is what the, it's called, and it was uh, the, the idea was Superman wasn't human, right? He was an alien, but he looked human. He only seemed human, and some people think of Jesus that way. They think, they thought that he was not really human. He just seemed human, and that was the heresy of docetism. So, We've said heresy, I think, three times so far today, and so what is heresy, right? Heresy is a bad idea or a false teaching that undercuts the gospel. We saw how it undercuts the gospel last week. We'll see the same thing again this week. And last week we said for the gospel to work that Jesus had to be fully man. And the reason for that is because sin is a human problem, and we need a human substitute to take our place, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And all the heresies that we're going to look at in this series are really dealing with the nature of Christ and who he is. Now, I said last week to you that I'm not the biggest fan of superhero movies. And I know that that's heresy to many of you. But if I had to pick a favorite, Batman. Batman. How many of you all would say Batman's your favorite if you had to pick? Come on. Come on. Only three of us, four of us, maybe. I know Batman's old school, and he's not like the new wave of Marvel, but, you know. So, that's the deal. But here's the deal, listen. So, if, if I had to pick one, it'd be Batman. Now listen, when I was young, this was my first memories of Batman, right? Um, this show, like these guys, wearing their pajamas, fighting crime. And, I mean, even look at the, look at the like, the, the face thing, like, the, the mask thing. It's like the words. It's, like, made out of cloth. It's horrible. So, um, this was, like, this little cheesy show way back in the day, in the 60s. And, uh, but then they started making all these great Batman movies, starting, like, in the 90s and all the way through. And I think the Batman movies have really, like, gone to another level, you know, like, took it to another level. So, uh, one of the best, I think, is uh, Batman Begins, Christian Bale playing Batman. And so I'm going to show you the trailer, because the trailer shows a bit of the backstory of Batman. So let's watch this Batman Begins trailer. Here we go. Tell us, Mr. Wayne. Parents' death was not your fault. 
My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Yes. A legend, Mr. Wayne. Master Wayne, are you coming back for long, sir? As long as it takes to show the people of Gotham their city doesn't belong to the criminals and the corrupt. Bruce? Rachel? You were gone a long time. I know. Things are worse than ever down here. What chance does Gotham have when the good people do nothing? Nomex survival suit for advanced infantry. Careful law utility harness, gas-powered magnetic grapple gun. What's that? You want the tumbler? You wouldn't be interested in that. I spent a lot of time being scared for you. I heard you were back. But the man I loved. The man who vanished never came back. He's here. Who? The Batman. Dresses up like a bat, clearly has issues. Yes. Yeah, it's this summer, guys. It's coming out this summer. We'll meet you at the theater. We'll see you there. So, who is Batman? So, um, the thing about Batman is he doesn't really have what's called superpower, right? He has no speed. He really can't breathe underwater. He uh, can't fly. He can't see through things. Um, so he's got this cool belt and a rope, right? He has some tools. Now, he's a ninja, kind of. Um, but that's not all he has. He also has a lot of money. He's got an amazing house. He's got these resources and a really cool suit. And the best thing about Batman, of course, is the Batmobile, right? And uh, so this next picture here, you can't really see it too well, but the, um, do, you know, do you know who actually has purchased the, one of the original Batmobiles? Um, I went to the Chick-fil-A headquarters in Atlanta a couple years ago, last year, and they had this, like, collection of cars. The guy that owns Chick-fil-A, or he, the CEO, he has, he has one of the Batmobiles in his little museum there, and you can see it. Um, so apparently... You all are eating a lot of chicken, and they can afford these kinds of things. So, um, but so Batman may not be uh, the most powerful, may not be your favorite, but he probably has the most developed character, I think, out of a lot of the um, superhero films. So how many of you, if you know his backstory, his parents are Thomas and Martha Wayne. I think, wasn't Superman's mom also named Martha can they not think of a new name for the mom of the superhero character? Martha is all they have. Like, all these creative geniuses, that's all they have is Martha. So if your, name, if your mom's name is Martha, you are destined for greatness, most likely. Um, so his dad is a doctor and a wealthy businessman. As a child, he sees his parents murdered by someone trying to mug his parents. And he vows, of course, to avenge their death. He's raised by the butler, Alfred. 
and uh, now Alfred is helping him fight crime in Gotham City, right? So the reason why Batman is so appealing, at least to me and I think to a lot of people, is he is the most relatable. He's the most relatable. He's the only superhero who's just a man, right? Now, he's an extraordinary man, but he's just a human. And he's, more the, I think, the most relatable character to all of us because, you know, a lot of us are billionaires, and we all have access to lots and lots of really cool gadgets, right? So, but in, in, as far as, like, superheroes go, he's, I think, a bit more relatable than some of the other characters that we come across. So today, we're going to talk about the heresy of liberalism. Here's what I mean by that. Because some people think the same thing about Jesus, that he was just a man, an amazing man, but just a man. And so the heresy we're going to talk about is called liberalism. Now, virtually no one's going to suggest that Jesus didn't exist. Even the most passionate atheist will say that Jesus most likely existed. But many have said he wasn't God. There's many that say he's, he, was, he would never claim to be God, that he was just a good man. They'll say he was a wise, compassionate, he was a good teacher, he was a leader, he was a great example. They'll use a lot of words to describe him, but they're not going to call him God. So where did this heresy come from? Well, it started with this guy, not, not just this guy, but this guy made it more popular. There's a guy named, if you can pronounce his name, uh, Frederick Schleiermacher. Can you say that real quick? Frederick Schleiermacher. And uh, he was from a couple of centuries ago. He was a German pastor and professor, and he was concerned that the church was losing numbers. He had a lot of academic friends that were moving away from the Christian faith, and this is around the age of the Enlightenment. So reason and science are starting to rule the day. And so he had friends that were moving away from the Christian faith because they couldn't reconcile the stories in the Bible, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, with their newfound reason and science. And so he wrote a book addressing people like this, and he told them that they didn't have to believe in all those miracles or even that Jesus was God. And so he really boiled the Christian faith. He stripped it down into something unrecognizable, but he still claimed to be a Christian. He just claimed that Christ was a good teacher, a good example, a wise man who put others before himself and that we should try to be like him. This is how he boiled down the Christian faith. He said, if you search your heart, just knowing there's someone out there for you to depend on, that's the essence of Christianity. And he really stripped Christianity down to, its, to where it's nothing. It's not even the claim that Jesus Christ is God, um, the resurrection, all of that just kind of goes away. And it's just all about, like, just trust that there's someone out there who cares about you and believe in whatever that is and try to be, follow his example, the example that Jesus set forth on this earth. That's what Christianity means in his estimation. So liberalism was not limited to his era, but it's also, I think, alive and well today. Um, there are these guys, I'm not sure that all their names involved, but there was this group that became known as the Jesus Seminar. And this next pic here is a picture of just some of their research and how it's been used over the last couple of decades. But in the 80s and 90s, there are some liberal religious scholars that joined together to figure out how much of the four Gospels they thought were accurate. And they just got together and decided 
they read through the Gospels, and they had their, their method. I can't show you their method of how they determined this, but they really boiled the Gospels down to, they thought 20% of what the Gospels said were actually true. They were, their job was to figure out, okay, how sure are we that Jesus really said this? And they would sort of highlight it in a certain color, and they would, they would show these different color schemes of, of what Christ said, what he maybe said, what he probably didn't say, and then what he absolutely did not say. And the whole project was, was basically done to show that you can't really trust the Gospels. You can't really trust what we think Jesus said from the Gospels. And every Easter, Easter's next Sunday, every Christmas and every Easter, you will see specials on CNN and on other channels and in magazines where they will bring these things up, the same rehash stuff all over again. And it goes back to this thing called the Jesus Seminar where these men and women tried to dismantle the Gospels and say that Jesus didn't really say all that we think he said. Notice that no one ever tries to disprove that he actually existed because no one can do that. Everyone knows that's a foolish argument. So they'll say things like Jesus was not divine. He was just a preacher who got in trouble with the Romans for political reasons. And they'll try to make up things about how he was executed for other reasons besides saying that he's God. And they certainly wouldn't believe in a resurrection. A guy named Todd Miles says this, When you deny the supernatural for philosophical and ideological reasons and then reject any reference to the supernatural in the Bible on the basis that it just can't be correct, it should not be surprising that all you are left with in the end is the kind of Jesus that the Jesus Seminar wanted to find in the first place. He's saying that when you set out to, you know, find a certain kind of Jesus and you're so determined to find, um, as, you th- as you see problems in the Gospels, well, it's pretty easy to find the kind of Christ that you're setting out to find, right? It's not a true research project. They really found just what they were looking for. So remember, it's not that these people don't have respect for Jesus. They think he's a good man, an important man, but they don't believe he's God. And this is um, the Batman heresy, that he's not, he's not really special. He's not really unique. He's just, a, he's just a human, just a guy. And so who commits this kind of heresy today? So we talked about this guy with the funny name, Schleiermacher. Um, he moved away from the deity of Christ. His friends moved away from that idea, so he compromised and, and moved away from that idea as well. This is, I think, one of the easiest heresies to fall into. Believing that Christ was just a good man takes no faith, it takes no commitment, it takes no, it doesn't cost you anything. It's one of the easiest to fall into. And this probably isn't the heresy that you might fall into, but it's popular on college campuses for sure. It's one of the most popular ones on college campuses. Rejecting Christ isn't the only way that liberalism takes root. There's other ways in which liberalism takes root. So just like Schleiermacher, there are people today who want to be labeled Christian, but they reject anything that might be considered unpopular in the culture that we live in. I'll give you one example. I think I've used this guy in the recent past. 
but there are many others as well. This guy that I've spoken about quite a bit um, here, his name is Rob Bell, and he was a prominent pastor, an author, speaker. I mean, he was 15 or maybe 10, 15 years ago, he was just blowing up in the Christian world. Like, everyone was, like, reading his books, and he had these really artsy videos he'd put together. And there were some good things that he was saying. But as things began to go down the road for him further, he began writing some books that were pretty controversial. And now he would still consider himself a Christian. He would consider himself a Christian. But I've heard him say numerous things questioning the virgin birth of Christ, some of the miracles in the Bible, the topic of hell, he wrote a whole book about and explained hell away and doesn't really believe in the way that we see hell. When it comes to homosexuality, he has fully embraced what God clearly calls sin. And so he's kind of been on the slippery slope for a long time, and the list goes on and on and on. And I've heard him say numerous times that he's afraid that Christianity will die out if we don't accommodate it to our modern culture. I've heard him say this in interviews. Now, he's not rejected the deity of Christ, and he's not rejected the resurrection, but he's rejected many other things that make Christianity unpopular today. And I think this is really my, one of my biggest fears for those of you in the room. That you might not reject his deity. You might not reject the resurrection. But when you see what being a Christian might cost you, some of you may begin to reject the unpopular ideas, what the Bible says about hell, what it says about sexuality, what it says about miracles, because you so want to be accepted by the people that you're around or the college that you end up going into later on or the high school that you're currently a part of, you begin to reject all the unpopular ideas because you want to be approved of by the culture that you're a part of. And I think liberalism comes from this desire to seek approval. It's a strong desire to seek approval. And that's where it is birthed. So let's look at what the Bible says. Again, most of you here, I think, believe Jesus is God. But I want to show you how we can know that from the Scriptures. This is going to be kind of a review for many of you, but I want to show this to you anyway. First of all, Jesus and others claimed he is divine. I think we can see this clearly in John chapter 8 at the verses here on the screen. We'll look at these verses. The context is that Jesus is accused of having a demon. And they ask him, who do you think you are? And Jesus responds in verse 54. He says, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So right there he's connecting, it is my Father of whom you say he is our God. So the Israelites believed in this God, obviously, that they were monotheists. They believed in God, the Father. And now Christ is saying, that God that you say you worship, that is my Father. Like, that's my Father, so he's equating himself with God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
So the Jews said to him, But you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's calling God his father, number one. He refers to Abraham, and they shout, you're you're not even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And he says, I was around before Abraham. And so they pick up stones to kill him, not because he's saying confusing things. He probably wasn't the only teacher back then to say confusing things. They know just what he's saying. They wanted to kill him because they knew he was clearly claiming to be God. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, but his disciples recognized him as God. Which disciple struggled with doubt the most? You know the answer, I think. Thomas, right? So Thomas didn't believe in the resurrected Christ until he could see for himself. He finally sees Jesus in the flesh. He sees the nail-scarred hands. He sees his pierced side, and he responds in John chapter 20, verse 28. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas calls him God, and he worships him as God. And if you notice in the rest of that passage, Jesus never rebukes him. For a Jewish person to fall down and worship someone as God, if that person really wasn't God, that would be idolatry in the Jewish world. So for Jesus to not rebuke him when Thomas worships him is a claim that Jesus is saying, yes, I am God. You can worship me. He accepts and receives worship from his disciples. We know that Paul taught that Jesus was God. Peter, Peter wrote that he was God. Even James, the brother of Jesus, we know James, the brother of Jesus, didn't believe that his brother was truly God until he saw something amazing and miraculous, and it was the resurrection, the resurrected Christ. Then he believed his brother was truly God. And these men all gave their life for that reality. They gave their life for this truth. The next point Jesus did things only God can do. So it'd be easy for us to talk about miracles, but we're not going to do that right now. We know he did miracles. But there's a famous story in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus is in this crowded house, and there are these men who have a friend, many of you know the story, who's paralyzed, and they want their friend healed. And so to get to Jesus, they have to break through the ceiling in this house, and they begin to dismantle the ceiling and begin to lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus sees this happen, what's the first thing that Jesus does? Does he walk over to the man and and put his hands over the man's legs and lightning comes out of his palms and then the the man's legs begin to glow and shake and there's like sparks flying everywhere and the man slowly stands to his feet That's not what happens. That's not the first thing that Jesus does. The first thing Jesus says, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, wait a minute. The man didn't come to have his sins forgiven. He came to have his legs fixed. He came so he could walk. 
That's why I came to see Jesus. So why would Jesus say this statement? Let's imagine for a moment if, if I didn't know you and I just walked up to you on the street and I just said, son, your uh, sins are forgiven. First, you think that's like creepy and weird, right? But secondly, in order for me to say, your son, son your sins are forgiven, that would mean that you, you had to have sinned against me in a specific way for me to say that to you. If you hadn't sinned against me, it wouldn't make sense for me to say your sins are forgiven. I can't really forgive you for sins you've committed against somebody else. I can only forgive you for what you have done against me. And so for Jesus to say the statement, son, your sins are forgiven, it was a statement that he is God because any sin this man had committed, even though Jesus just met him, technically, any sin he had committed would have been a sin against God and a sin against Jesus. This is why Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven. It's a claim that he's God. The Jewish religious leaders are there. They know just what he's saying because in the passage, Mark says, they begin to ask in their hearts. They don't even say it out loud. It says they begin to think in their hearts and in their minds. Why does he speak like that? He's calling himself God when he says your sins are forgiven. They're not saying it out loud, and Jesus reads their minds. And he calls them out, and he says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you will know that I do have the authority to forgive sins, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. I want you to notice, again, Jesus never does miracles just to show off his power. He first claims to forgive sin, then as the scribes begin to squirm and, and question in their own hearts, he backs up his claim with a miracle. So for the scribes, the most controversial thing Jesus did here was that he claimed to forgive sin. That was the most controversial thing he did in the story. So how do we know he's God? Well, he forgave sin, and he accepted worship. He receives worship from his disciples. And here's why all this is important. Because if Jesus was just a good man or a teacher, if all he was was a good man or a teacher, he might be good enough to inspire us or teach us, but he's not good enough to save us. Last week we said that Jesus had to be human so we could take our place. This week we're saying he has to be divine because we need someone who's not just human. We need someone who's God. We need someone who is divine. Um, one of the most famous people to become, go from atheism to believing in Christianity and Jesus Christ is a guy named C.S. Lewis. You've heard me quote him a bunch of times. But he has what, what he calls the, the trilemma, which... Jesus has to be, he's, he talks about this in Mere Christianity, his book. He says Jesus either has to be a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Jesus does not leave us any other option. Because if someone claims to be God, 
but they're really not, well, that makes them a liar. If someone claims to be God, and they're really not, but they think they are, that's a lunatic. And the only other option for Jesus is that he truly is Lord. Because we cannot say that he was just a good man or a good moral teacher or one of the best men to ever live. We would never say that about someone who's a liar or a lunatic. We could not say that he was those things if he truly wasn't Lord because he claimed to be divine. He doesn't allow for any other option than these three. And I know most of you here don't struggle with Jesus being God. But there are some other ways that you might adopt liberalism, as we call it. As you go through high school and beyond, you're going to be under immense social pressure. But I want you to get some good news today. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible warns us about this. It tells us we're going to feel foolish for being a Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. In our world, there are a lot of things that will make you feel foolish for being a Christian. We've talked about some of those this morning already. But we forget what might look most foolish to the world. And it's actually the cross that looks most foolish to the world. That might be surprising for you because we, I mean, in our culture, people wear a crucifix around. It's just like what you do in America, right? You wear a cross because that's just, that's just what we do here. It's part of our culture. But I want to encourage you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So I want to encourage you, don't be afraid that all these other cultural topics are going to be the thing and where you feel the pressure. Because the Bible even claims here and elsewhere in the the New Testament that you're going to feel foolish for being a Christian. But the primary reason why you're going to feel foolish for being a Christian is because of the cross. The cross seems like foolishness to those who are perishing. So of course, other things that we believe are going to seem like foolishness to those who don't know who Jesus is. And so I want to encourage you this morning, especially if you're Let's say you're at the junior, senior level in here. Like, you've, you've felt it. You have, you have felt the immense social pressure to begin to chip away at certain things related to your faith because of people you know and friends that you have and teachers that you have, and the list goes on and on and on. But I want to encourage you, if someone begins to question your faith because they would say things like, you know, how can you believe all that garbage about, you know, the virgin birth and miracles, what the Bible says about hell or sexuality, you know, you can, you can say, you know, you know, I actually believe crazier things than that. I believe that God came in the flesh and allowed himself to be put on a cross and killed 
on my behalf, and he was my substitute. And after three days, he rose again, and one day he's going to make all things new. Trust me, I believe even crazier things than the things that you're calling me out for. And, you know, here's the good news is that the Bible even says that many would see the cross as foolishness. And so my hope for many of you in this room is that the cross, the message of the cross, would be what you are committed to. It would remain powerful to you. And you'd stay committed to Christ as you walk through um, your life following him. I'm going to pray for you, and uh, you guys can have your discussion. Let's pray. God, thank you. Um, We praise you for um, telling us in your word just what we can expect in the culture that we're a part of. We know there's, there's no one in this room that hasn't been affected by the social pressures of the things we're talking about. All of us have. But I thank you that in the, the pages of your word that's, that's timeless, you give us the warning. You tell us this is going to happen to us so that we can look to you and understand and have faith and trust in you. And I pray for these, these students in this room that they would walk knowing that the, the, tr- the true power of Christianity is in the message of the cross. And they would love you and seek you and follow you. I pray this in your name. Amen.